Well, good morning to you. Uh, it was really great. Some of you I had to meet last week when I was able to come out, and I, I'm just so thankful to be here again with you. Thank you for being so, those of you I met, just so caring and kind to me last week, and uh, Joshua as he was here. And uh, it's, it is so neat that there's so many places you can go to where we share together a love for God and for his word. And so it's, it's just a joy to be with you this morning. Uh, as you picked up on, we're going to be in 1 John, starting in chapter 2, verse 28. That's where we're going to start. Uh, if you have a Bible, I, I'd really invite you to get that out, because I'm going to read it again, and I'd like you to follow along, because we're going to look at what it says. We're going to, hopefully, hopefully I can bring some clarity to some of the confusing parts of this passage. John is very, a very confusing writer at times, but this passage, God has so much good for us in it. And so I invite you to get that out. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. So let me pray. Um, I'll pray after I read the text. Let me read it again, and then we'll pray together and, and get into it. Okay? So 1 John 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. All right, would you pray with me? Father, once again, we come to you together and pray to you because we know that you have good for us and because we, we've come to love you We've come to understand what you have done for us in Christ on the cross and in his resurrection to bring us hope. Hope of no condemnation. Hope of forever being with you and hope of seeing you and becoming like you. And God, I pray that this morning you would bless this time. Just be with us in a way that we can understand your word very well and that it wouldn't just be knowledge, but it would it would sink deep into our hearts and our lives. God, we know you have good for us. We know that you love us. 
So God, we just pray for that to be apparent in the way that you care for us through your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So are we, are you and I on point in following Jesus? This is kind of a tough question because there are a lot of voices in our lives that would say, no, the way you're following Jesus is missing it in some way. See, some voices in our life might say, well, you are a little bit extreme to be taking this Jesus guy as seriously as you are. You're giving your life to him. Every week you show up to gather with a bunch of other people. Are you, you're just, this is too serious. Are you taking him for too much? Have you ever felt that way where it's like a challenge of, man, you're making a big deal out of who Jesus is. But the reality is that there are other people who make it sound like we haven't gone far enough in what it means to follow Jesus. And they would put it more like this, like, well, you're, you seem to be holding to the Bible, but back then they didn't know a lot of things that, you know, we know now, and, and you're sticking with what the Bible says, and so why, we need to go a little further. I mean, G, even Jesus didn't know some of the things we know today about how to live and how our lives should be structured. And so they imply, like, well, we haven't gone far enough. We need to progress past what God has told us. We need to keep going further in one sense with what it means to be godly or live a a right life. I bet if I went around this room, I think that many of us would have stories of people in our lives who've either bought into that way of thinking or have challenged us in one of those ways of thinking. What's interesting is in John's day when he wrote this letter to a small church of believers the situation was actually really similar to that. You see, in that church, as you heard last week, there were people in the church who had been a part of the church but now had left the church. Remember in 2.19, he says, They went out from us, but they weren't of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be plain that they are not of us. Now, why had these people gone out from the church? They'd left and abandoned this small group of believers who had trusted in Jesus. Why had they done that? Well, in verse 22 there, we're told that they denied that Jesus was the Christ. In our passage today, we're going to see that they threw off living godly lives. They said, enough with that. I've got a better way to live. This is the truth, not that whole thing you're holding to. The effect of this was that the believers who were left, think about this, the believers who were left felt challenged as to whether they really were holding to the truth. It instilled doubt. Do I have it right? Am I really in the truth? Am I really saved? Or is this just a big sham that I'm holding to? And remember, that's why John wrote this letter. It's so wonderful. John wrote this letter for this purpose. In the end of the book, chapter 5, verse 13, John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. His whole purpose in this letter is to remind the believers, you've got it. You have Christ. If you're clinging to him, if you are trusting in him, you know the truth. This is good news for you. And so you see, as we're we're coming to our passage today, John wants that same thing for us. That's what God intends through this passage, is that you and I, 
if we have trusted in Christ, that we would be confident in what God has done in us. God has good for us in this to see what kind of transformation he has done in our lives, in your life, in my life, even if it's hard for us to believe that this much has happened. And so to see this, we're going to go through this in three steps, okay? We're going to go through this passage in three steps. The first is we're going to look at the reality of what God has done. The reality that God has made us his children. Okay, you've heard that phrase before. It's a Christian phrase of we're God's children, but what does he mean? We've been made children of God. The second thing we're going to do is we're going to ask, what is the mark that being God's children has left on us? In other words, if we're his children, what does that change about us? What what has that done to us? And John makes really clear, God has done something very powerful in our life if we have become his child, God's children. And finally, we're going to look at what, what the calling is. What is it, what are we called to in light of all this? And as we, we heard earlier shared when we were praying over this, this is so good. We're called to abide. We're called to remain. We're going to, we're going to talk about that. So, the reality. What has God done in our lives? And according to John, God has called us to be born again as his children. This is so good. So that means that if you have believed in Jesus, if we're gathered in this room around the name of Jesus, you've believed in him, this is a reality that's true of you. Listen to this back in 1 John 3, 1, right in our passage. It says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. In other words, not only are you called a child of God, like a cute metaphor, but he's saying that's what we are. So we are. Throughout this passage, John keeps bringing up another phrase that talks about this. He keeps talking about the idea of being born of God. And it's a picture of us having what is fundamental about us being changed because of this idea of being born again or a new birth or God having brought about a new reality to our hearts. And it means that if... that. A fatherly mark, God's loving fatherly mark has been placed on us and we've been brought into his family as his children. So we see this in 229. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him, meaning born of God. Again, in 3, 9, and 10, he says, no one born of him makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning because He has been born of God. And by this it's evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. So you hear, this is what God has done. He's made us his children. He's caused us to be born of him. And that means that if we're in Christ, that's who we are. Which begs the question, how do we become one of those children? I trust that many of you know this deeply, but my goodness, it has to be clear to us. It has to be so clear to us because to John, this is like the question. We become, according to John, to use his language, part of God's family by trusting in Jesus. Some of you know the the story of Jesus and Nicodemus from John chapter 3, which is another writing of the same John, but where he's describing Jesus' life. And there's this Pharisee, so a very religious person who comes to Jesus at night and asks him a question. In John 3, verse 3, he says, Truly, 
or Jesus says to him, to Nicodemus, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone's born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so Nicodemus asks the obvious follow-up question, someone who hasn't heard of this before, like many of us have, and says, well, basically, how can someone be born twice? Can that ha- how, how can that happen? How does that work? And Jesus responds with this, and it's so good for what it means to be born of God. He says, and this is John 3, four, verse 14. He says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. See, that passage that most of us know so well is steeped right in the middle of this question of what does it mean to be born again? It means we've believed in the name of Jesus and by believing in him, we've been forgiven and given eternal life with God and made part of his family. And so back to our passage in 1 John chapter 3. We see that this is how God has loved us. It's not just that God said, you know, I'll save you, but, you know, you're going to be a slave over here or someone I don't care about. It's no, see what kind of love the Father has given to us because we are called children of God. And that is who we are. This is the reality of what God has done in us. And I would just want to say, if that's new to you in any way, or I would love to speak with you afterwards because this is, this is so good to have this reality about who, our, who we are, what our identity is, changed, and to be confident in that because we know Jesus has done something for us on the cross and we have believed in that. We've believed in him. So that's the reality that God has called us who believe in him to be born again as his children. But what is the, the mark that he has left? The reality is, if we're God's children, that means that something about our lives has changed, according to John. In a very real, real way, we become like our father, whether we realize it or not. Now think about this. This is natural, what John's about to say to us. We become like our fathers in one way or another. My wife gives me the hardest time for a habit that I have, particularly if I'm working on a project in the garage. I apparently stick my tongue out all the time while I'm concentrating on something that I'm about to be doing. Well, you'll never guess it, but my sons, of which I have three, guess what they're doing now, or at least the older two. They're sticking their tongue out whenever they're coloring with a crayon. They, it's so natural, they copy, they become like the one that they came from, the one who they are marked by. They bear the marks of me. And guess where you got, where I got that habit from? (laughs) My dad. (laughs) Honestly, I got it from him. You see, it's so natural and so in our nature to become like our father's. And not just in silly habits like that. Um, Not just in silly ways, but in real, tangible, and even unconscious ways. We're shaped by our parents. Some of them are genetic, like how we look, right? Some are temperamental, like how we respond to stress. 
or other factors in our life. And throughout the times of the Bible, this idea of being the son of someone carried a lot of weight. It meant that if you were the son of someone, you were marked by them, and your actions were to reflect who your father was. It was far more understood as a natural and important thing that that was your marking. Even reading the Old Testament, he's the son of so-and-so. That marking was there for a reason. So how have we been made like our Heavenly Father if we're his children? What's the mark that he's left? Well, according to John, the mark he's left is we have been changed to be righteous. Now bear with me for a second, because this, this sounds really hard to hear, but listen carefully again to what John says. In 2.29, he says, If you know that he is righteous, referring to God, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So, in other words, becoming like our Father, we now do righteousness. We practice righteousness. We are marked by a practice of life that is like God in righteousness. Not only that, but John goes on to say that we stop continuing in sin. And this is where, trust me, this is, this is hard to hear because it's like, wait, how does that fit? We'll get to that. But he says in, in 3.6, he says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And then he says in verse, the next verse, verse 7, he says, Little children, let no one deceive you. Don't get this wrong. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. And then in verse 9, he says again, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Now, I hinted at this, but watch where your mind just went as you hear that. Because if, if you're like me and been raised in the church, you're, th- you're probably thinking, like, how can that be true? How, how can John say that I don't continue sinning? I stop that. Because in my life, I don't know about you, but it seems hard to believe that that could be something John would say. Like in my life, there was a time where Yeah, I I certainly would stop something thinking I'm going to trust Jesus, but the more I've walked with him, it seems like the more aware I become of certain sins or of ways that are sinful tendencies in the way I think or act or speak. Is that what John's saying? The reality is that's not what John means. John knows very well that true Christians like you and me can and do sin in one sense. You remember this from maybe a month, month and a half ago. I forget how long. If you remember this, in 1 John 1 and the beginning of 1 John 2, John talks about what it looks like for Christians to be in sin and to have committed sin. And he says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word's not in us. And in the beginning of chapter 2, he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You see, John gets it. 
we sin if we're Christians. There's a sense in which we do and we, can, we have sinned. But there's Jesus who can forgive us. And later in chapter 5, he actually tells the, the church to pray for people in the fellowship who commit sin. Meaning the Christians in the church might mess up and sin against God at times. You see, John understands that Christians sin, but that's not what he means here in this passage. In this passage, he is talking about a very specific kind of sin. A kind of sin that a true Christian, I think you'll be joyful to hear this, doesn't actually continue in. And the hint that John gives us is in verse 4 of chapter 3. There's a little word there, lawlessness. That word is loaded in 3.4, he says, whoever makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You see, John knows that although true Christians can and do sin, like you're in my experience in life, has been, there is a sense in which true Christians don't sin. Follow me carefully here. This is really neat. There's a sense in which Christians can't sin at least in this way. That word lawless means rebellion, iniquity, being anti-God and his rule in our life. That, any of that picture of lawlessness is not something a real Christian does. And this fits right in with the way John's been talking about Christians and non-Christians throughout the whole letter. You see, in this letter, John, like I I said earlier, has been drawing a contrast between those who went out and who are not of the truth and those who stayed in the church and are remaining in Christ and trusting in him and clinging to him for their salvation and their life. And when John talks about those who went out and are trying to deceive the church, he says, like in chapter 1, verse 6, that they walk in the darkness and they don't do the truth. He says that they say they have no sin and that they haven't sinned. That's chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. He says that they don't keep God's commandments. They just disregard them. In chapter 2, verse 4. Chapter 2, verse 9, John says that they hate other believers. Like they're marked by hating Christians. In chapter 2, verse 23, like we looked at this earlier, They deny the Son. So by definition, their actions are just lawless. They're throwing off Christ. They're not trusting in Him. Are any of those things that a true Christian does? Not really. No. And again, as John speaks about believers throughout this passage, it's beautiful. He says they do the truth. They walk in the light. They acknowledge and confess their sin. That's incredible. They keep Christ's commandments. They love the brothers. They do the will of God. They don't deny the Son, but they confess the Son. So see, even imperfectly, Christians are marked by saying, I I, I want Jesus. I I want his grace. I want his help. I'm not perfect. I need him. I want his grace in my life. I want his forgiveness. I acknowledge that I need him. And so to be clear, John is arguing that there are marks of righteousness that a Christian has and a non-Christian doesn't have. 
And that mark is, is whether you're shrugging off God in lawlessness or whether you're coming to him and clinging to him. And I think that you and I know that this is really clear. It can be clear. In, in 3 verse 10 in our passage, at the end of our passage, he says, by this it's evident who are the children of God. I think we know that this is true. Let, let's say that someone comes up to you. And this person who comes up to you tells you that they're a Christian. You just have met them. And you ask them, what does it mean to be a Christian? You say you're a Christian. What does it mean? And they say, well, I believe that there's a God. But I, I, I don't really like going to church because I, I'm convinced God just wants me to be happy. And all those Christians in church, they're just talking about sin and they're making it so hard for people to just live their best life. And I, I just want to enjoy my life. And I think God is just about making me the best, my best version of myself. But say somebody else comes up to you and they tell you that they're a Christian and you ask them about their faith and they say, well, I, I mean, I believe God exists. I believe God made everything. He made you and me. But I've come to believe that everybody, including myself, have sinned against him. Um, but Jesus came to save us from our sin and, and I trust in him. But I've been really discouraged lately because I keep struggling with this sin. Which one of these two people you just met bears the mark of a true Christian? Which one of them bears the mark of lawlessness? You see, the first one denies their sin and shrugs off what Jesus has done. But the second one acknowledges their sin and that it continues, but is marked by the righteousness of God, by trusting in him. See, this is such good news for us. It's not just, this passage, some people read it as like, are you sinless enough to be a Christian or are you sinning too much? That's not what John is talking about. He's not talking about good apples versus bad apples. He's talking about apples and oranges. Are you clinging to Christ? Or are you marked by shrugging him off as if he didn't do anything for you on the cross? And I think that if there's been any clarity in my words, those of you who know Christ are probably resonating with a bit of what, what John is saying here. You know it's true. It's not that you're sinless, but it's you can't fathom shrugging off Christ. You can't fathom walking without him. To draw near to him in his grace is life. It's joy. It's where we find our purpose, where we find our life and our assurance of salvation. Because we want more of him. So we've seen the reality. God has made us his children, and because we're his children, we've been marked. And the mark is we bear this mark of righteousness. But I want to close with what we're, what we're called to. See, those things we've just looked at are just true this is God's grace in your life. Like, hear it and be encouraged. Be strengthened. If you are trusting in Christ, this is who you are. This is something to revel in and say, I know this is true. I can walk in this. I can stand tall that God loves me as his, child, as his child. But what are we called to? And for John, what we're called to is so simple. We are called to abide. 
we are just called to abide, to remain, to continue walking near with Christ. See, if this is what, is gone, what God has done, this is all he asks of us. This is what he is asking us to do, is to draw near in this way. We are not to worry whether we're off point because we're taking God too seriously. Nor are we to worry about the latest update to what it should look like to be a Christian. No, we're to cling to Christ and his word. We're to abide in what we have received. You see, John knows that in Christ, you and I have all that we need to walk with God in faithfulness and truth. We have been made God's children not by anything we've done, but because of the spiritual new birth and his goodness to us. And we look forward to the one day when we will be like him more fully. As he says in in 3, chapter 3, verse 2, he says, we're God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But when he appears, we, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes and purifies himself as he is pure. We walk with him. We abide in him because we're looking forward to that day. And so back to verse two, or chapter 2, verse 28. I want you to hear why we're in ab- abiding in this. This is so good. You see, John, writing to this church, calls them and us to abide in him for a purpose. He says, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him at shame, in shame at his coming. This is the vision John has in his mind for you and I, that one day, each and every one of us will stand before God. And if we're walking in Jesus, we believe the truth, the truth we've come to him, we are, we're abiding in him, we get to stand before God in confidence and not shrink from him in shame. That's what John, envisioning his mind, is hoping for you and for me. That's what he's longing for. That's why he's writing to these believers, to assure them you are in the truth. You have received the good news. Now abide in him. Because we're looking forward to this day. We're looking forward to this. And so do you live with that vision in your mind? Do you look forward to that? Do you say, God, I want to I keep walking with you. Do you look to that day and say, I want to remain in Jesus today because that day is coming. And it is so good that I will be like him. This is our calling, and it's my hope for you this morning, and for me, for me. If you're in Christ, if we would be built up in this assurance, and we would walk even more closely with him. Knowing we're a child of God, knowing that we're marked by his righteousness, because since we're God's righteous children, since that's a reality, we are called to abide in him. So would you pray with me once more? Father, I thank you for this text. I thank you that John is so passionate about seeing believers confident of what you have done in making us your children. 
I pray for, for all of us who are here. We may have come into this room with discouragement. We may have come into this room with, with strife in our life from various things going on in family or work. We may be coming in questioning certain things about our relationship with you. Have, I, have we done enough? Have I prayed enough? What, what's going on with my relationship with you? God, I pray that you would warm our hearts to the assurance of what it means to have believed in Christ and to be abiding in him. I thank you, God, that you speak to us with words like, this is how you've loved us. God, I pray that you would do that sort of good work in us, warming our hearts to your goodness, warming our hearts to your love for us. And I pray that we would go out from here and be walking in confidence as your children and living in such a way that is not marked by lawlessness but is marked as we are in the truth of the gospel and the truth of clinging to you, God. God, we love you and that's why this morning we gather to worship you and to just revel in this. And so we praise you and it's in the name of Jesus that we pray these things. Amen.